Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for the opportunity again to think about your word, to think about our lives in light of your word. So we pray that you would shine that light on us, uh, within us, that we might see ourselves as you see us. But that we not only see that, which is frightening and ugly at times, but most of all, you would also shine the light on Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has redeemed us and, re and remind us that you transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light because of the love of your Son. Bless us now as we continue to think about these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to read from Psalm 139, verses 1 through 12. Uh, David writes this psalm, and he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be as light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Amen. Amen. I want to build on my talk from yesterday about two faces. One of my earliest memories around age five is a time when I got to get in the bed and spend the night with my dad because my mom was at the hospital having just given birth to my younger brother. And I remember him talking to me about the fact that God can always see me. And I mentioned this yesterday, but I want to mention it again um, about the children's catechism. Can you see God? No, but he can always see me. What an important thing for everybody to know and remember, because we really want to push that away. We want to not think about that sometimes, as we will see, because we have all said and done things that we would not have said and that we would not have done had someone else been present. And so we hide, we close doors, we delete our text, we bury the truth, but Jesus said in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, and his, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. When we sin, when you sin, when I sin, we all become atheists, at least for a few moments. 
For a few moments, we want to be God. Isn't that the original sin? And isn't that the root of all sin? Of course, God is omnipresent. That is, he is present everywhere. And I think this is really important. Sometimes we, we think about that, that God's present. But he is not only present everywhere all the time, but he is present all the time in his fullness everywhere all the time. His attention, unlike yours and mine, is never divided. I can't think about two or three things at the same time. I can focus on one and then another and then another. God can focus on everything. He does focus. It's not just that he can. He does. He is, he is present in all of his fullness all the time. In fact, it's as though you were the only person in the world all the time before God. God said of his people in Jeremiah 16, 17, for my eyes are all are for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. If you take one thing in today, I want you to take that in. None of your sins, and we're going to see that this, this covers the whole spectrum of sin, are ever hidden from God. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch over the evil and the good. A God-fearing person lives all their life in the consciousness of God's presence. And I use the phrase, the conscious presence, deliberately. The truth is, we all live in the presence of God, whether we're aware of it or not, whether we're thinking about it or not. It's true, and it's always true. As we read in Psalm 139, David was keenly aware that, uh, of, of never being absent from God's all-pervasive presence. Neither height of the heavens, nor the depth of the earth, nor the farthest boundaries of the sea could provide an escape from God. Wherever David went, God was there seeing all that he did, and that's true for you and me. You have no hiding places. To help us understand this, the Bible teaches both the immensity and omnipresence of God to kind of emphasize a point I've already made here. Perhaps these two terms might be best understood by an analogy. If I sit behind my desk, I have a fairly large desk, I can reach forward with my arm and I can touch, barely touch the, the front of the desk if I'm behind it. But I cannot be both in front of and behind my desk at the same time. God, however, is both behind my desk and in front of it all, at all times, and not by the extension of his arms, so to speak, but with his entire being. He is, in fact, present everywhere in my study, in my house, and in the entire universe. Even on the most distant star of the universe, God is there. And his indivisible essence, in other words, all that God is in his eternity and, and infinity, he is just as much that in my study as he is anywhere else. That's God's immensity. Solomon acknowledged God's immensity in his dedication prayer of the temple in 1 Kings 8.27. But will God really dwell on earth? 
The heavens and even the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less the temple that I have built. So God's omnipresence, that is the fact that he's present everywhere, arises obviously from his immensity, and it refers to his continuous presence with each of us. This is what David was acknowledging again in Psalm 139. Wherever we are, you are there. God is with me in my study, and at the same time, he is with my wife in the kitchen. And when I travel to a distant city, God is just as much with my wife back home as he is with me on my trip. He is present with my Ukrainian Christian brothers on the other side of the world, just as much as he is with us here in Texas. And even if we could travel in a spaceship to the most distant planet, God would still be there with us. Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24 speaks to both God's immensity and his omnipresence. It says, am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places? So, I shall, so that I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? says the Lord. So you and I are in his sight and in his company, and it is the omnipresence of God that is the most applicable to us. It means, again, that we are never out of his presence and his all-seeing eye. Of course, I always like to stop and pause and say, you know what, if there is no God, then you don't need to worry about this at all. you got to worry about a lot of other things. Like the fact that this life means absolutely nothing. Nothing you think, nothing you feel, nothing you hope, nothing you dream. In the end, you are nothing. That's the alternative. But if the God of the Bible exists, as he says he does, and as he does, then he's everything. This is an all or nothing proposition. God's not somebody, he's not the old man sitting in heaven that you call on when you're in trouble to the man upstairs to somehow bail you out. That's not the God of the Bible. He's not there for your convenience or my convenience. He is our creator, and we owe him our total allegiance. Again, if he doesn't exist, then let's, let's break camp and go home. It's all a waste of time. We're here because we're Christians, and we take this seriously, and, and nailing this down. This is not a little bitty God that we worship. You can hide from one another. You can occasionally hide from your parents. But you can never hide from God. One characteristic, then, of a God-fearing person is the continual awareness that wherever he or she goes, God is there. Such a consciousness of God's presence will obviously affect your conduct. As J.I. Packer has written, living becomes an awesome business when you realize that you spend every moment of your life in the sight and company of an omniscient, that is, all-knowing, all-present creator. Who among us isn't guilty of disregarding God's constant presence? But a God-fearing person should be the same at all times. 
knowing that we live every moment of our lives in his presence. In other words, we can't be two-faced. Because God knows what's going on. And this means that we need to establish, you and I need to establish the habit of constantly being aware of this fact. And there are things we can do, I'll talk about in a moment, to increase this. That the God who created the universe and keeps the stars in their courses takes note of every movement of ours. He observes our slightest sideways glance. He hears our whispered words. The person who fears God is conscious that God is aware of every minute detail, every mundane activity of his or her life. And such awareness, to the degree you have it, will serve as a check on temptation to sin. It means that because we are aware of his all-seeing eye and his all-hearing ear, that we live in a way that pleases him as he sees what we do and hears what we say. Paul's instructions, for example, to servants, or we would say perhaps employees, in this case slaves, in Colossians 3, 22 through 25, to Christians, was to obey whether or not they were under the eye of their master. Why? Because the reality is that God was present. God is present whether your boss is there or not. He's present whether your parents are there or not, or your teacher is there, or your pastor is there. Applying this principle, I remember it reminds me when I was in high school, I was an outspoken Christian and I worked at a plant nursery and there was a bunch of guys there and usually when there's a bunch of guys somewhere, there's some nastiness going on. And uh, I, I came in one day and about five of them sitting there and they were being crude. And as I walked in, uh, one of them said, oh, we better be quiet. The, the Christian is here. And I respectfully but directly said, guys, I'm going to go ahead and step out because I really don't want to hear what you have to say. But let me just remind you, after I leave, God's still here. And one of the guys said, oh, man, don't say that. Um, it kind of ruined the moment, right? Um, so such an awareness, again, is a check on our temptation. Paul, again, back to Colossians, he says the reality is that God's present, whether the boss is there or not. Applying this principle to today's working world, we see that the Christian is always to work not just to win his employer's favor, but to work unto the Lord and under his watchful eye. This means we don't steal time. Uh, we don't take extra long coffee and lunch breaks. We don't do shoddy work because there's no supervisor there to observe us. It means we accurately report business expenses because it is God who audits our reports. It's God who knows whether you cheated on that test. And in the same way, Paul instructs us, uh, instructs masters or bosses, and his instruction to them is to provide their servants with what is right and fair. And that was based on the fact that masters also have a master, a master who is in heaven, and God's watching eye is over their treatment of those who are under their charge with his all-seeing eye. So the truth is that every interaction we have with another person is in the presence of God. One of the things I counsel in premarital counseling is couples are about to uh, marry is uh, that they 
have the habit of praying together all the time, every day, even if it's one sentence, even if it's uh, just, Lord, bless this day, bless this person, because we want to normalize prayer. That's one of the ways we're going to cultivate an awareness of the presence of God. But one of the, I'll talk about having rules for conflict, because people are going to have conflicts, but one of the rules that couples should have, and that you should really have with your friends, and you have to normalize this, because if you just wait until something comes up, it just feels weird, everything new feels weird. But if you've done it regularly, if you pray together regularly, and some, a conflict comes up, an issue comes up, and, and somebody can just say, hey, why don't we pray about this? So a husband or a wife, we have a rule at my house, no matter what. Any conflict, let's pray about this. You know, it immediately changes the whole atmosphere. It immediately changes our attitudes, and it immediately causes us to remember that God is in the room, and that we're here to solve a problem, not make the problem worse. Changes how we talk to each other, our tone of voice, everything else. So that's one of the ways we cultivate an awareness of God's presence. So all of our life, all of our interactions with other people, we should be conscious of God's presence. And this is where integrity actually begins. Living in the presence of God. And this should be a fundamental characteristic of the person who fears God. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the starting place. Can't even get started without that. Now I want to go into a little more detail. God not only hears what you say, he not only sees what you do, the Bible tells us that our every he knows our every thought in exact detail. Think about it. Have you ever, you ever pray silently? Does God hear you when you just pray silently? And you think, think a prayer? You think he doesn't hear you when you're thinking other things? <clears throat> he not only sees and hears what we say or do, he knows our thoughts. Uh, Psalm 139, 2 and 4, you know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Psalm 44, 21 also tells us God knows the secrets of the heart. And in Jeremiah 17, 10, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Therefore, to live in God's conscious, conscious presence means, uh, our conscious of God's presence, that we also live in the awareness that God knows our every thought. All of us have thoughts that we would be ashamed of if other people knew them. We entertain thoughts of jealousy, covetousness, envy, resentment, lust. <coughs> thoughts that we would be ashamed to share with our family or friends. All of those thoughts are fully known by God. He knows them in their exact detail, just as we think them. As Hebrews 4.13 so forcefully states, And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus said, but I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. This should be unnerving to you and me. Now there's going to be more to this story that's going to be comforting. But right now, I hope this is making you uncomfortable. It makes me very uncomfortable. 
we should be uncomfortable. We should be ashamed of some of the things we think and say and do. It's sobering to realize that the same accountability holds true not only for words and deeds, but for my thoughts. And since God knows every thought in exact detail, the person who fears the Lord seeks to control his or her thought life in the same way we should control our conduct. It matters what you think. If we wouldn't murder, then we don't harbor thoughts of anger and resentment toward another person. It's true that anger is not as serious as murder, nor lustful thoughts as serious as actual adultery, but Jesus makes it clear that our thoughts, uh, the thoughts of our heart and attitudes are judged by God just as much as our actions, and that we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Controlling our thought life has two sides to it. We must deal with negative, sinful thoughts and also seek to fill our minds with positive, godly thoughts. The Bible says as a man thinks in his heart, so is it. Paul's description of godly thought patterns found in Philippians 4.8 is a good model. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about these things. And Paul is obviously setting before us the very, the very highest standard for our thought life, and even though we will fall short, we must seek to make every thought obedient to Christ. And because we need the Lord's help, we would do well to pray with David from Psalm 19, 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now God not only knows your words, he not only knows your actions, he not only knows your thoughts, he goes even deeper. He knows our motives. His knowledge of us penetrates even deeper. He knows why we do what we do. 1 Chronicles 28.9, the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. Sometimes we would complain if someone made some judgment about us. Well, you don't know what I'm thinking. You don't know what my intentions are. And that might be true. But God does. We sometimes do the right thing for the wrong reasons, or perhaps a combination of right and wrong reasons. We sincerely perhaps want to help someone or contribute to some worthy objective, but we also want to look good in the process, right? So we have mixed motives, and sometimes we're not even aware of our mixed motives, but God sees our motives, and he sees the ones we don't even see, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will, bring, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. So we should ask God to make us aware of even the wrong motives that we don't see. The important thing to realize is that everything about you Everything about me, not only every word, not only every action, but every thought and every motive lies before God as an open book all the time. 
So to fear God means living in this continual awareness of his presence and knowledge. And here, I want you, I'm going to give you a few things. These are the obvious things. I want you to think about how much you neglect these things. First, just the Bible. Not just reading the Bible. I want to really urge you to memorize the Bible. The Bible, Jesus says the word has to abide in you. And a Bible on your shelf doesn't help you much. But getting God's word into you, where it's there when you need it, to resist, what did Jesus do when he was tempted? He quoted scripture. What do you do when you're tempted? That takes work. That takes commitment. That takes effort. That takes a goal. That takes a plan. It isn't going to just happen. Prayer. I want you to make a commitment to pray every day, at least once a day. How long? I don't care how long. How about 15 seconds? Oh Lord, help me today. Help me be aware of your presence, to walk before you with integrity, to honor you in my thoughts and motives, my words and actions. Amen. If you do that every day, you'll find yourself adding to that. Some days you'll pray 20 seconds, and sometimes 30, and sometimes a minute. Pretty soon, prayer will just be normal. And you'll be aware of God's presence. And then pray with a friend. Get used to that. So that's weird. Of course it's weird. You want to do it enough so it's not weird. What else? You're going to, be, you're going to commit yourself to worship. Daily. Weekly worship. Corporate worship. Coming to camps. Being around other Christian people. Everything you can do to cultivate an awareness of God's presence is going to help you grow and mature and follow that one who has the one face, and that's Jesus, because Jesus always lived with a conscious awareness that he was in the presence of his Father. That's who we want to be like. So the fact that we do live in the constant presence of God should not only be a sobering thing to us, and here's where I want to go with this now, because uh, the Word of God wounds, it cuts, it convicts, it hurts. But it's, it immediately offers healing and comfort. The fact, so I want you to note the transition David makes in Psalm 139, verse 7. He acknowledges that he cannot flee from God's presence. But in verse 10, he speaks of God's right hand holding him fast like a parent tightly gripping the hand of a small child, both to guide him and to protect him from danger. David has moved from God's watchful presence to a consideration of his protecting presence. And when our children, when our children were small or we were in a crowd, or crossing a busy street, I was not satisfied for them to hold my hand. I wanted to hold their hand. Of course, it was most often a mutual thing. They were insecure enough to cling tightly to my hand as I gripped theirs. That is the picture of the way God is with us. He is pleased when we cling to his hand, so to speak, in dependence upon him. But whether we cling to him or not, he grips our hand as David said, your right hand shall uphold me. We see this picture again in Psalm 73, 23, where Asaph wrote, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me 
by my right hand. The context of that verse is worth noting to fully appreciate what Asaph was saying early in the psalm. Asaph is struggling with an apparent injustice of God. Verse 12, the wicked always seem to be prospering. This is what the wicked are like, Asaph concludes, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. In contrast, Asaph looks at himself. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. Unbelievers are having all the fun. Seem like they're doing really well, and here I am. I'm suffering. I'm going through hard things. It seemed to him the godly were worse off than the wicked, and then Asaph came to his senses, and he confessed this. Verse 21, my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. And he, he was convicted. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me into glory. He remembered who he was. He remembered who God was. I'm a child of God. God has me. Immediately after this confession, Asaph acknowledges God's faithfulness and his constant care. He realized that God always held him by his right hand, even when circumstances tempted him to think otherwise. Do you actually think you can walk through this life by yourself? You already have, and you will have many more times when you're afraid you're scared and when you're alone you cannot do this without him so cultivate that relationship now don't wait for that moment the truth of God's continuous protecting presence is taught throughout the scripture as Moses was preparing to turn over to Joshua his role of leading Israel he said to Joshua and the people in Deuteronomy 31 8 and the Lord he is the one who goes before you he will be with you he will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. The writer of Hebrews also picks up this when he says in Hebrews 13, 5, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, this is our reason for not being, we should be afraid of God. To not be afraid of God is to be foolish. He's holy and you're not. He's God and you're not. He can cast you into hell. You should fear God. And if you fear God, it will alleviate your other fears. So closely associated with the, this promise of God's continuous protective presence is his command of encouragement. Do not be afraid, as Pastor Hatting has already alluded to. This refrain occurs throughout the Bible from Genesis 15.1 to Revelation 2.10. And it is, of course, because God is always with us that we should not be afraid. For example, 1 Chronicles 28.20, David said to Solomon, Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. The little child is not afraid as long as his mom or dad grips his hand. It's when he somehow gets separated from them and he becomes afraid. God, however, is always with us. It is impossible for one of his children to be separated from him 
Whatever his perception may be, David apparently felt separated from God on numerous occasions. In Psalm 10:1, he complains that God hides himself in times of trouble. In Psalm 31, uh, 13, 1, he asks, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Psalm 31, 22, he exclaims, I am cut off from your sight. But then he adds, You heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. God is always with us. He's always holding our hand and saying, don't be afraid, even when we don't perceive his presence. When C.S. Lewis's wife died, he, uh, he said he went to God and cried out to God in his grief, and he said, all I heard was the slamming of a door, and the bolting and double bolting of that door. In other words, he felt like God was far away. Some weeks and months later, after he his joy had returned, a friend asked him, I thought you said that God had closed the door. And he said, I realized I had closed the door. He was there all along. Here's the good news. God sees all. That's scary. He knows me better than I know me. That's scary. He knows the very worst things about me, and I've got some really bad things. Embarrassing things, wicked things, dark things. He knows all that. And you hide those things, and I hide those things from other people. Why? Why? Because I'm afraid if they knew them, they wouldn't like me, much less wouldn't love me. But God knows all of that. And he still loves you. Can you think of anything more secure than that? You know, if you had a friendship or relationship and you think, ah, I haven't told them about this. And I'm afraid to tell them because if I tell them, it might break this relationship. They might not love me anymore. And so you live in fear and you live in insecurity. But to be known, to be fully known and loved, you can't get any more secure than that. God's not going to learn something about you tomorrow and go, oh, never mind. I don't love you anymore. In fact, Spurgeon made the comment, God must have loved me before I was born because if he waited until after I was born, he wouldn't have found anything to love. Despite all that he sees and knows about us and our sins, he still loves us. And when he chose us in Christ, even before the creation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, he knew even then about all of our sinful ways, our unholy thoughts, our unkind words, and our self-centered motives. And he chose us not because he foresaw, foresaw that we would be good, but because of his own sovereign love for us. He overcame that. And when God the Father sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to stand in our place, he laid on him all of our iniquities. He took all of that gross stuff that you've got and he put it on Jesus. Christ bore all of our sins on the cross, all the secret ones. <clears throat> Because of that, the Apostle Paul could write, He forgave us all our sins. Colossians 2.13 and in Romans 4.8, Blessed or happy is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. 
Despite all the sin God sees in our lives, he has cleansed us with the blood of Christ and clothed us with righteousness. He took all of our sins and put it on the sinless Jesus who bore our sins in his body on the cross. And he took all the righteousness of Christ and he put it on you. He clothed you. He covered you with that. That's what salvation is. And because of this, we can now be absolutely honest before God. We should be, uh, we should be because he knows about it anyway, but too often because of a sense of guilt, we try in some way to hide our sin from God by rationalizing about it or seeking some way to justify it or excuse it. But David had learned the freedom of knowing how God knew all about him and still loved him. Because of this, he willingly asked God to search his heart for any offensive ways in him. We, too, can ask God to search our hearts, to expose us. Lord, show me what I need to see. You know, I'm often thinking, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If, if you confess your particular sins, don't just say, Lord, forgive me my many sins. Start naming them. Maybe you ought to write them down sometime get, to get some sense of it. Lord, would you forgive me for this and this and this and the way I looked and the tone of voice and the way I lied and the way I covered up and the way I... Would you forgive me of those? God says, yes, I will. Every one, one by one. And I'm going to go ahead and cleanse you from the other things that you don't even know about yet. All unrighteousness. Because there's still some sins you're not even seeing. You're clouded. You don't perceive yourself yet the way he does. So he says, you confess the ones you know about, and I'll, I'll, I'll forgive those, and I'll cleanse you of the other ones, and little by little I'll teach you and show you more. David had learned the freedom of knowing how God knew all about him and still loved him because he was, because of this again, he could ask that uh, he search us, that he reveal sins that we're not aware of, such as selfishness and pride and stubbornness, because it is so painful to have sins brought to light, but we must see them so that we can repent of them and give them to him to deal with. Finally, people who fear God, live their lives in the conscious presence of God. They speak, they act, they think in the continual awareness that God sees all their actions, hears all their words, knows all their thoughts, and is aware of all their motives. On the one hand, as I said, this has a sobering, restraining influence on them to keep them from more sin, even in their thoughts. And on the other hand, they have the joy. They have the joy of knowing that even though God knows all about your sins, all about them, he has forgiven them through Christ. He accepts you through the merit of Christ. And as a result, we are grateful. Are you grateful? Are you a complainer, a whiner? You see what you don't have? Let me ask you, do you see what you do have? You really want what you deserve? Anybody want to stand up now and say, God, give me what I deserve? No. 
Lord, we have been given, you, every one of you, have been given so much. So the only possible response would be gratitude. Grateful for both the restraining influence and the assurance of forgiveness that comes from knowing we live in the constant presence of God's all-seeing eye and all-hearing ear. And thus, we can experience joy in the fear of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself in your word, teaching us who you are, teaching us about your immensity, about your omnipresence, about your omniscience, your knowing everything about us, inside and out, all the time. And Lord, as creatures, that is unnerving, and like Adam and Eve, we want to run and hide because we are ashamed. But like Adam and Eve, you made a covering for us in our shame. And this was not just the skins of animals sacrificed for them. But this was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the Lamb of God, who has now covered us with his righteousness so that we are not ashamed anymore we have hope, we have a remedy, we have cleansing, we have a savior. Search us now, Lord, search our hearts and see if there is any hurtful way in us. We know you already know about it. We pray, Lord, you would expose it to us so that we might see it and bring it to you so that it too can be dealt with and we can grow and become more and more like our wonderful Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.